I didn't come from a coaching tree or I didn't play collegiately. I didn't have the networking connections that I do have now, 15, 16 years into the journey. But for me, the, the most impactful thing I heard was Kevin Eastman, where he said, I've never turned down a basketball opportunity. And one of the most fulfilling things for me was when I finally got to meet him, I got to thank him in person. Like Coach Eastman, that advice made all the difference in my career. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome the head coach of Lake Oswego High School, located just south of Portland, Oregon, Marshall Cho. Coach Cho is here today to discuss handling and managing stress and mental health of young athletes, building a simple but fundamentally sound offensive and defensive system, and we talk coaching in Africa, triple threat, and shot selection during the always fun start, sub, or sit. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to both the podcast and our Sunday morning newsletter, where we curate and break down the best tactical, leadership, and thought-provoking coaching material we can find. Visit slappingglass.com for more information today. We hope to see you there. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Marshall Cho. Coach, thanks so much for coming on and spending time with us. We're really excited to talk to you today. Likewise, really looking forward to this. So Coach, one of the things that you and I have talked about that's been on the top of a lot of minds of all the different levels, but especially for you at the high school level, is mental health and athletes. And for you, I know you're seeing it every single day. And so we'll start there with, as a high school coach, how you view the mental health of your athletes and what you can do as a coach to sort of help them in the process. We talked about that a lot leading up to this. And you've had some interviews that really, you know, you sent me some clips from past guests that triggered, you know, thought-provoking things on my end. I've been telling a lot of people during this time that the range from where our student athletes are able to show their resilience and also they show how fragile they are during this time. You know, it's just expanded in a range that we hadn't seen before. So as coaches, we have a great opportunity to let them know that they're stronger than they realize. You know, it's the same thing as for having them pushing themselves physically, you know, whether they can make a certain time of running a 17s or, you know, having a certain number of shots in a given time. And, you know, it's always a special thing when they achieve that. It's been a similar journey for us. This last class in particular, the class of 2021 across the country, you know, in our state in Oregon, our guys, their junior year, they got the state playoffs taken away from them the day of, you know, their state quarterfinals. And then they go into an entire season in, in the state of Oregon. Other places across the country had their season in November, December, January, February. In the state of Oregon, we, they didn't have their senior season until May and June. We got delayed all the way that way. So I had five seniors last year who graduated who, who were playing their high school varsity games two weeks after they graduated from high school. And one of the books that we read as a group last year is Legacy, as many coaches out there may know. And one of the quotes in the very front of the book is, exceptional success comes from extraordinary circumstances, right? something to that nature. So you try to let the kids embrace it. But at the same time, you know, it's really just being present to how they are day to day. Like every day, you have to have a check-in with them. So the warm-up times when they're doing their dynamic warm-ups and stretches, you as a head coach, all the assistant coaches, you have to throw yourself in there to see how their day went. You know, a daily check-in is just extremely important because you might raise your voice in a demanding tone and all of a sudden the kid cracks and you realize how fragile they really are and how much stress they've been under. We talked about this as well, Dan. Like, I think it starts with the head coach. I think it starts with the head coach willing to share and being human before them, you know, their players and willing to share their vulnerabilities and their struggles, their doubts. That's been a daily routine for me as well, to share with the kids what my day was like. Just like you guys, I rushed this morning in to make the 8.30 interview time because I was dropping my daughter off. That's life, I'm a high school coach. So just being honest with them, I think it's been the biggest thing. And I'm somebody who, I check myself too, you know, am I doing well during this time? I think the mental health of coaches during this time, it's been incredibly hard and taxing. But I'm one of those people who's wired to be glass half full. I generally tend to not lean that way, but it's been really a time of self-reflection and, and checking up on myself and making sure that I'm right so that I could pour into my kids. Coach, if I could go into, uh, by the way, I love the book Legacy as well. It's a fantastic book. And so cool to hear that. 
the check-ins. I'd like to go back to that and your individual check-ins with the players and the ways that you actually do that. Tuning into you guys, you know, sitting in my high school basketball office this morning, as I'm staring into the camera, past me is the door where, you know, I leave it open during the season, right? It's an open door policy, but you'll always see the kid who kind of, you know, walks back and forth and they'll peek in and see what coach is up to, you know, usually on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. The best thing I've, you know, been able to do this year, I had some friends with the Trailblazers in town, you know, front office, and they just had extra Gatorade packages left, bottles of Gatorade that were, you know, going to expire and they couldn't give it to the Damian Willards and the CJ McCollum. <laughs> so here we are, we have about a years long, you know, worth of Gatorade in our storage room. And so I, we have a mini fridge, you know, that's something I did year one as a high school coach. It started with chocolate milk, uh-huh. you know, something that, you know, post-game workouts and, you know, I wanted to run this high school program like I experienced at University of Portland. Expiration date on milks, you know, it, it makes those <laughs> things complicated. Uh, yeah, right. uh, a, a week old chocolate milk is different than a week old Gatorade. That's right. I would imagine. But what's been interesting is kids come in all the time. For every high school program out there, you know, maybe your budget isn't, you know, having all this Gatorade, but it might be a power bar or it might be something that just draws them in. It might be a pair of socks that you give out every week or, you know, whatever. But that's been the biggest thing because as much as I like to say, and you know, I'm on this platform with slapping glass and telling everybody, yeah, I check in regularly. I don't. It's incredibly hard to find time to do that. So having my system is a mini fridge full of Gatorade. And it's amazing how often the kids will just stop by and, you know, hey, coach, can I get a bottle? And I'm stealing, you know, this is, again, the generation that's on their cell phone and their attention span is, you know, extremely short. And so for them to have a sit down across from me, drink a bottle of Gatorade, you know, which might take. 15 seconds, it might turn into a 15 minute conversation. It's putting the hook out as, you know, if you're a fisherman and and trying to see what the catch of the day is and try to be present to catch those conversations when teenage boys make themselves available. Coach, hearing you talk about this and kind of circling back to say, just checking in with yourself as a head coach, what do you view your role is in providing your student athletes with a valuable high school experience with a valuable senior year, especially when it comes to maybe balancing winning or maybe when your team's, you know, high school, we can't all recruit. Maybe it's going to be a down year, but still making the most out of that season. You know, behind me again, if people are going to see the YouTube video, you know, it's a blue trophy. That's the state championship trophy in our state. Our claim to fame at Lake Oswego High School is Kevin Love attended here, you know, national player of the year. He has one state championship. You know, a lot of people say, hey, like, how do you only win one with, you know, a guy who was that prolific? But, you know, that was during the heydays of our, you know, in our state when we also had Kyle Singler. We had a very strong Jesuit program led by the Tarver brothers who went on to play at Oregon State. So for, you know, this is my seventh year here. And I come from the school of, you know, Mike Jones at the math at Morgan Wooten, where the standard there is championships every year. That's the expectation. And in moments of hubris, I try to think I'd like to build that program in our state. But the reality of it is you don't get that every year. We chase it, though. And it's okay to let them know that it's okay to be driven by their dreams. You can put your name next to a love. And that's a big deal. But, you know, what the last few years have taught me is, again, like we coaches always talk about it. It's the journey, you know, and it's pursuing moments and taking those. and, And so that at the end of it, just like the two years ago when our guys get to the quarterfinals and they're on a run, we've been 12-0 and in league and we are the hottest team in the state. And they feel confident that that's their shot at, you know, almost like basketball immortality in our state, right? Putting their name next to Kevin Love and they get that rug pulled under them. What do you have left with, you know? And so in our program, every senior gets a framed jersey. It costs a pretty penny out here. So, you know, we have to fundraise a little <laughs> bit for it. But last year, I had five seniors who walked away with it. This year, I have 10, you know, because of the COVID times, we were very inclusive. And there's kids who maybe under other years might have been cut, but they made it through. So we give them that trophy at the end. It's a reminder of all the blood, sweat, and tears and everything, you know, that they went through. They had to survive Coach Cho and all the hard practices. And so we <laughs> want them to have those memories, you know. And we do intentionally bring those up, you know, case in point, you know, Dan, we were talking about this tough loss we had last night against a rival in West Lynn where Peyton Pritchard played and it's a big rivalry here. And our scorebook keeper, Mike Fury, who had been with us for 24 years, you know, I don't know if he was trying to make me feel good after a really bad loss, but he said to me, you know, that's the gutsiest game I've seen a Lakers Vigo team play in 24 years. Yeah, at multiple points of the game, we were down more than double digits. And we came back and we took the lead with 22 seconds left and gave ourselves a chance to win. And so I made sure that yesterday's practice, Mike Fury came in and he spoke those words into our players. You know, the championship's not guaranteed, but that particular game, especially after a loss, 
how they played, how they conducted themselves, how they, again, were resilient time and time and again when chips were down. That's a win. That's our championship. So they'll have that for the rest of their lives yeah. and they can hold their head high. So it's, again, having great people like that, that would, again, lift you up and pick you up when you're down. But also as a head coach, it's realizing what that is and putting those people in front of our players to highlight you know, those memories that they've earned. Coach, I'd like to circle back on something you just said too, and it kind of ties into this whole mental health resilience piece. You mentioned about going through Coach Show's hard practices. So for you, when you look at in the frame of the mental health piece, but also building resilience in kids and finding the balance of a coach of, you know, you don't want to be obviously so hard on them that there's issues, but you need to be hard enough so that they do develop the resilient muscles and whatnot. At the same time, obviously, you're very tuned in to how they are emotionally as young adults. You know, I think the hardest thing for me, you know, I'm the video doesn't show it. And obviously people listening, you know, can't tell I'm 5'8", 140 pounds soaking wet. I don't look the part of a basketball player when I step on. And it's always funny when I hug a 6'6 kid, like I'm at their waist. And I look like <laughs> yeah. The hardest thing for me, I think the last two years during COVID with protocols was not being able to physically touch our players. You know, my favorite thing to do is always to hop on a, you know, post drills. I do like to think that I have pretty good footwork down there, you know, it's just vertically challenged, but, you know, mixing it up, you know, hitting them with the pads and all that stuff. And it's letting them know, like, I'm in your life, like physically, you know, I'm in your life, you know, mental, obviously, like, you know, if I'm in your head during practice and I give you stuff to think about, you know, I, I give them film assignments, I give them, you know, motivational quotes, I text them, I meet them in their social media, you know, play spaces that they're in. I'm in their life a lot, but the biggest thing you know, that we missed the last two years is just a physical touch. Our football coach here, Steve Corey, who's, you know, a legendary, like if you think like Friday Night Lights, uh -huh. there should be a picture of Steve Corey, you know, popping up. And my first year, I got here seven years ago. And again, like physically, like his staff is full of these guys who look like, you know, who played offensive line. They're just these huge hulking men. And I would walk in, you know, being that, you know, undersized, you know, point guard myself. And these guys would give me the biggest, tightest like football hug man <laughs> hugs you know and i'm like what's up with these guys and then every time they would walk away like i love you man you know i love you man is like a you know i love you we're here for you like that stuff i learned from you know watching our football program so we try to do that you know we, we try to adapt them up give them a you know like real hugs sure. like ones that you know you yeah. know like hey is this a little uncomfortable for you <laughs> it's one more way of pushing teenagers out of their comfort zone i had a dad yesterday an alum who overheard a conversation I was having with a player that graduated two years ago. He ended the phone call with love you coach. And the dad texted me and told me how much that meant to him that his son has that kind of a relationship with their coach. And again, that's the privilege of what we all get to do. We are, you know, like the man in the arena, you know, poster hanging up behind me, you know, our guys put themselves out there, you know, to fail in public and for us to be there to pick them up and tell them that they're loved no matter what is a great privilege to have as a coach. Coach, you mentioned the parents a second ago. And as a high school coach, I know you have to deal with parents all the time. And when it comes to the health of their kids and the experience of their kids, you know, what role have you learned over the years about bringing the parents in so that they're a part of the process or maybe not bringing the parents in, but how you view working with them? And that's evolved too. I think I'm 45 now. I have two children, 11 and eight. My son loves basketball. He's in the sixth grade. He actually attends, you know, the rival high school here in town and we live on the other <laughs> side of the lake. So it's always interesting, you know, when I roll yeah. up in the grade school pickup and I'm <laughs> head to go in Lake Oswego gear and I get the I get the look. You know, I understand now more than ever how important coaches are because you know, my son's getting to the stage where, you know, a coach's voice is gonna be at some point surpassing my own voice as a parent. The boundaries for me is that my constituents are always the players because the parents could get upset about, you know, their child's playing time or, you know, maybe they might hear something secondhand and think like, how is my son being treated by this man? But those moments of miscommunication or misunderstandings that, you know, inevitably happen in any program, you know, whether you're in high school, college or professional, you know, even professionally in these days, I always tell them, like, I respect you and I understand how hard it must be for you to hand over and trust that, you know, we're going to do right by your son. My ultimate constituency is always going to be the players. And I would always challenge parents to say, hey, like, ask your son. If your son comes home and says, yeah, you know, like, he is treating me unfairly. It's too much or whatever. Then I can look in the mirror and say, hey, I got to work with the family on this. Sure. At the same time, I think just over communicating in this day and age, involving them with when I send the weekly emails out, I try to add tidbits of guest speakers that we brought in, try to capture moments of it, photos, videos, so that they do feel like they're a part of the journey. 
and then lastly, you know, whether that it's I'm where I'm running our camps to our practices. I know you guys had Don Showalter from USA Basketball, the other high school you know coach. I learned from him what we do before practice is mind candies. These quotes, you know, even Jason Tatum and these guys talk about to this day. You know, they remember what Showalter did for them. I'll give them a mind candy. Now I challenge them to go and talk about it at their dinner table. Then it also triggers for parents to, because sometimes I think this day and age, especially in a community like ours, I, I think our parents are aware of not trying to be those people who are constantly reaching out to the coach either. They, sure. I've found in, in our Lake School community that our parents are very respectful of that boundary and the work that I have to do. When you send a quote or you send a mind candy home with the player and they can talk about it at the dinner table and it triggers something for the mom and dad to open that line of communication and say, hey, you know, Casey brought this quote and we had a really good conversation about it. But thank you, coach. And that gives me a chance to say, hey, he's been awesome in practice. You know, this happened, that happened. Mm -hmm. And we root for your son. We're proud of your son. Especially during this time of anxiety for parents, I think we have a huge opportunity as coaches to serve them, not seeking their approval, but to let them know that their son is in good hands is an absolute must during these times. And coach, I guess just sort of summarizing from my end is, you know, for you, all the things that you do off the court, the mind candy, the group work, working players and coaches, the emails allows you to then have tough practices and be demanding on them because there's such a trust built up between you and the player and the parents and the staff. Yeah, we live with the vulnerability piece. The players can't play for you until they know who they're playing for, I feel like. I think when they know your story and what you're about, Lake Oswego is the wealthiest suburb in the state of Oregon. But the most rewarding thing of building this program in the last seven years is when opposing coaches say, man, you guys play hard. This is not the stereotype of Lake Oswego that I expect. No. Sure, absolutely. I try my best to not throw the word privilege in our players' faces. You know, it's not their fault that their parents worked their butt off to give them the opportunity to attend a school district like this and part of this community. They didn't choose that. So empowering them to play as hard as I did. I grew up as an immigrant on free and reduced lunch in Springfield, Oregon, a blue-collar lumber mill town. Hey, guys, that's my story. I've never had anything handed to me in my professional career. I had to go out and get it. And I'm going to bring that chip on my shoulder. And some form or fashion, it's going to rub off on them. But it can't rub off or it won't stick unless I know their story. You know, all of them. Like when I go even a generation beyond their parents, when they talk about their grandparents, we do an exercise I stole from Tony Bennett at UVA and he stole it from somebody else. You know, hero, hardship, highlight, right? It was right after they had the tough loss to UMBC and they do this exercise. And so the hero portion of it, you know, oftentimes like kids will talk about their mom or dad and, and talk about the rough upbringing they had. A certain player admires her mom because she had to overcome all these obstacles growing up without anything to get to where she is today. And so when I can tap into that and say, hey man, your mom will work harder in practice than you. Right. <laughs> that's going to trigger for them a pride. Like, oh yeah, coach, like watch this. So it's tapping into that, but trying to do it not in a demeaning way, but trying to do it in, it's demanding, but the demand comes out of their identity of who they are mm -hmm. and what line they come yeah. from. That's something I'm really, really proud of. And I'm proud of our guys and it makes me proud to be a part of this program. Hey coaches, we'd like to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Instat. They have been hands down the biggest resource we've used in generating our content. Their expansive database of over 30,000 players and 7,000 teams gives us the access we need to scout, notice trends, and learn from some of the best coaches in the game today. So join coaches of all levels who are using Instat to better prepare for their opponents, self-scout, and develop their players. By going to instatsport.com form and entering the promo code SGPOD, coaches can receive one free month of Instat Scout and 10% off their subscription. That's sgpod at instatsport.com slash form. Thanks again to Instat for their support. And now back to our conversation. Coach, we want to shift gears a little bit onto the court now and talk about some tactical stuff with you. And I think the way we'd like to start this is by reading you back a quote from an opposing coach when we we're kind of getting ready for the interview and you asked about, hey, tactical stuff we might talk about. This was a quote from another coach. And so I'll read it to you now and then we can dive in. The question was asked basically, you know, what maybe you do tactically that's different or unique or something like that. And the quote is, you know, that's just it. You don't do anything crazy. You play simple, fundamental basketball. 
You teach your players how to play the game so that they are prepared to make decisions in game as opposed to trying to create robots who only know how to function within a specific pattern or scheme. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great quote. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. You know, I'm a part of something bigger than myself. That's how I always told myself in our coaching community. There's different bubbles I'm a part of, whether that's the USA basketball junior national team coaches or, you know, being a high school coach, a public high school coach in the state of Oregon. So to receive a quote like that back is pretty big. But it also came out of a place of, I don't know if it's insecurity or it's nervousness or it's intimidation, you know, of all the great guests that you guys have had. And some of the ideas that come out of, you know, like some of these coaches' brains, you just go like, where do you have the time or the, (laughs) you know, the mindset to like come up with these things? But, you know, the biggest thing we talk about at the high school level is you got to meet them where they're at. You can think about all these fancy schemes and whatnot. They can't dribble. They can't catch. They can't, you know, they can't pivot. They can't come to a jump stop. You know, just even to go back to Coach Schulter and and the journey that I've been fortunate to have with him and just watching him. And, you know, I would volunteer every mini camp opportunity. I would fly myself out. I wasn't a coach. I was a support staff member. I was moving boxes. But, you know, Coach Showalter was always gracious and, you know, would let me hop on and grab a team or help with the drill or whatnot. When they started the program, it really caught eyes of people who were scouts and, you know, journalists who watched Coach Showalter do a line drill, an old John Wooden line drill. You guys know what those are? They call yeah. them a dribble pivot threes. You know, you have 60 players in the gym. So how do you maximize that space? And, and Coach would have four or five guys in a single file line spread across and they would, you know, dribble up, jump stop, reverse pivot, forward pivot, fundamental chest pass. And all these scouts are like Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and Colin Sexton and Darius Garland are doing these drills. And some of them, you could really tell like the big fellows, especially they struggle with these drills. And so I think that gave me the license and the confidence to know, okay, well, if we're going to do this with the junior national team, it's okay to do it at Lake Oswego High School. Sure. So we start there. But, you know, all that to say, there are elements of, you know, the actions that you guys have shared before with other coaches that I've been fortunate to have assistant coaches who are extremely bright. One young coach, Jason Luno, who just left my program in the middle of the season to go be a video room intern with the Blazers. I have young coaches who are motivated like that. Or I had a TJ Dorado who was in the video room with the Austin Spurs. And he came for a couple of years after that stint to be my assistant coach for two years. And so as a head coach, always trying to learn something new. And the fun part of like, can an action that we see in the NBA or G League actually work with high school guys? So for us, two years ago with TJ, it was bringing in the weak action with the trailing big. I had never done it before. I just handed the offense over to him and said, hey, you run it. I'll monitor it. If I don't like you know what I see, I'll step in. And it was so messy. <laughs> the first- <laughs> you know, a month and you just wait and wait and wait until this thing will turn. And as a head coach, I think it's having the faith in your assistant coaches that we're all going to figure it out together. And so it was one action, but we ran it repeatedly. And that's where, again, these, you know, responses from my rival coaches come is because they've seen that by the time we get to league, by the time we have about 10 to 12 games under our belt, that we are running it smoothly. We are finding the counters. The players are able to make the reads and it makes us really hard to scout at the end because at that point, my hands are up. It is 100% in their hands to make the reads. And the only thing I have to do is an occasional timeout to bail them out. Coach, staying on these actions and developing the reads with such a limited maybe preseason, you're getting guys from other sports. How are you teaching? Are you teaching more through drills or is it important more to, I mean, I, I know it's always a combination of both, but what you learn more towards five on five. And like you said, we're just going to put it in. It's going to be ugly. You're going to teach on the fly versus let's break it down kind of step by step. I think just coming from the school of, you know, watching coach, you know, Jones and his staff at the math, or even having been at University of Portland for a couple of years where, you know, in the off season with the NCAA regulations, you know, you can have eight hours of workout and you see how collegiate staff or a college like staff, like, you know, the math of high school would run these, you know, preseason workouts. So in our state too, we're fortunate that we have, you know, six hours a week before the season starts, you know, it'll be four weeks after the fall season has started. So there's a window leading up to the season where our guys can have our breakfast club, you know, morning workout times. I have an assistant coach, Rob Smaller, who, again, I delegated that to him. And so the most successful years that we've had, you know, we'll have a morning workout from 7 to 7.45, nothing too extensive, just something to get them up in the morning so that their day is off, you know, with the school with some exercise and, you know, sweat broken in. But we do a lot of our two-on-two, three-on-three breakdown work. 
this year or last year with COVID, you know, it's been really up and down. And I think that's indicative of why we struggled a little bit coming out of the gates both seasons. But here's where we follow that structure. The breakdown drills happen a lot so that by the time they get to the season, it's not a foreign language to them. When it comes to sort of theme of simplicity and teaching and building, when it comes to thinking about what you're actually going to run, you know, you mentioned putting in the week series or whatnot last year, but looking at something that either interests you, that's simple for them to learn, or the personnel and players you have, I guess, how do you sit down with yourself and your staff and figure out, here's what I want to run and here's why? I went to a clinic a few years ago where David Vanderpool, you know, who was an assistant coach with the Blazers at the time, gave a talk and, you know, he's moved on to Brooklyn, you know, this past season. And he was giving a talk to a group of high school coaches and he said something interesting. He said, you know, with the versatility players being the name of the game these days, you'll see a lot of lineups in the NBA where guys will go six four, six, 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 eight across the board, right? And they can switch everything and, and whatnot. And he said something interesting that, you know, he found himself watching more high school games because that's what high school basketball is you know you're not going to have the seven footers and you're not going to have that height disparity as much yeah i'll have a six one football player you know then a six two you know (laughs) a track star or whatever and so it was interesting for him to share that with us and then so that triggered for me to pay more attention to teams that you know use take advantage of their versatility we're a small public high school so again we you know we got about almost 1200 students so it's not like i had this big pool to pull from but there are certain athletes that you watch your freshman year and go hey that's a kid who plays another sport maybe isn't going to be a skilled but i'm going to be able to switch him on defense i'm going to be able to have him be a role player as a screener something that i stole from one of the interviews you guys can tell me you know the one of the coaches said there's always the creator the finisher and the worker i think that was twomasi solo i believe That was so good. You know, we, I've stolen that line. And so we don't look at positions, but we really look at a kid and go, hey, you're 5'10", and everybody else will say you're a point guard, but you're a finisher. You're a shooter first. And so sure. putting that mirror back on them and letting them know who they are. But in terms of the actions where I get inspiration, I do watch NBA now which is funny. Two years ago, I had a really dynamic power forward who could bring the ball up a 6'6", you know, division one basketball player who could handle the rock. I wanted him to be able to do that at the next level. So I watched the Bucks offense, you know, Ben Sullivan, who's an alum from here, was an assistant coach there. So I can give him a call and ask some questions. And it's fun for the kids because it would force them to watch, you know, some game or encourage them to watch some games too. Because that's the other thing about this generation. These guys watch highlights. They don't really intentionally sit and watch games. So in order to move forward with that, to encourage them to watch, and and college basketball is, I think, hard for them. But where the NBA action where, you know, you are getting up and down and they could see an action or two and then they're getting to play. That's what they aspire to anyways. And so part of me hasn't really, I'm not trying to fight that. I want them to have that joy and that, again, like, it's so much fun when our video room guys in our own high school program could show a NBA edit and then show our edit right after it. Well, see, that's you, that's Giannis. That's, you know, hey, that's Chris Paul. See, that's what you get to do. You know, and it's not really, but, you know, they get a kick out of it. So, yeah, the inspiration definitely comes from the highest level. But again, like, yep. you know, the resources, like the stuff that you guys put out from some random coach in Slovenia or, you know, <laughs> like, I'll, I'll take that too. So, coach, my follow up is, Your role as a play caller and at the high school level and keeping it simple, how much of the action are you dictating? Maybe telling them to run this action versus letting them just play in concepts and letting them go. Where does your preference lie? It's not so much preference. It's just how it works itself out over the course of a high school season. I'll call a lot more in the beginning of the season and I'll hold their hands. The goal at the end, by the end of the season, is to always just be able to sit back and try to be that cool coach who sits down on the bench and just lets their players play. <laughs> yeah. I have visions of that happening. <laughs> <at some point. laughs> One day. Yeah. I'll cover the entire sideline from end to end. But I think that's always the goal. And we've gotten close. It's building the capacity of these players, again, not to just keep clapping you guys up and saying, hey, I stole from such and such. But, you know, it's a Sue Bird comment, you know, when you guys had that interview, even somebody like Sue Bird is like, I get tired of calling plays like, right. coach, give me a break. Give me something to, you know, work with here. I think it's that. It really depends on the capacity of the creator in your program who can, you know, set things up for their teammates. When I notice that they're getting fatigued, then I'll stand up and, you know, let them know I'm here. Hey, let's try this. You know, the 80-20 is really like ideal, but every year is different. Coach, when it comes to the other side of the ball, and we're kind of talking offense right now a little bit, but is that the same balance for you of 
keeping things simple or since you keep things potentially simpler offensively for them to learn from, can you be more complex on defense or do you demand more defensively? Where's the balance there for you? The great teams, defensive teams that we've had over the years, we do show every day. I stole that from Coach Jones at DeMatha. Every day we do show. And when, before we do it, you know, I'll say, hey, we get to do show. And <laughs> our whole shtick, everybody, I don't know if they really, you know, are thrilled about it. But for every show drill, whether it's in the first third of the practice or last third, they have to cheer. Because I've ingrained in them a belief that this is what helps us win. This is our identity. But same thing is I've learned over the last two years with all the time that we missed, they can turn into robots on the defensive end in a hurry. So we do our rotation where a guy will, you know, do the 45 cut with the ball. And, you know, you do the drill where you, the kid has the ball in his hand and he pounds it into a kid, you know, the defender's chest and they fall. And what we've learned is that they've just become robotic in their shell rotations as well. And so it's the science and the art and the balance of what you have to do as a high school coach is you have to teach feel. Mm-hmm. How many times have, you know, coaches come on and say, man, this kid just doesn't have any feel. Right. Well, that's your job, coach. <laughs> That's on you to show them what that looks like. And so the early struggles on the defensive end is when, you know, a kid who's, again, I have great kids, so they're trying to do the right thing, but they're standing at the block with the guy who's six feet away who could see the charge attempt coming Uh from the defense. They're already in a stance, hands down. They're ready to take the charge. And the guys, you're stepping around them. It's the overhelp, you know? And so what I found the best is I get away from that robotic practice plan script myself, let them play, blow the whistle every chance I get when I see that a kid is becoming robotic in a way. Sure. And I'm calling that out too. You're being a robot. You didn't need to take a charge there. Come up, you know, with your hands up and don't overhelp. And then on the back end of post-practice, you know, you show them practice clips or you show them game clips where they're, they're doing exactly that. We've had many conversations about teaching being better defenders that can operate in this gray, you know, in the shell drill where it's more structured, how do you incorporate the gray? You know, is it incorporating gray or is it, you know, what I said earlier, right? About the players have to know who their coach is before they start to learn, right? So I think for any of us, our dream version is, you know, I have a really talented six, seven player. I will never be that. You know, I have a freshman who's going to be a, he's already holds a division one offer. And in a way, as a coach, I get to live vicariously through him. And he comes in as this freshman who doesn't know anything, but my vision for him is at the end, he has my mindset or he has my motor, right? And so it's who I am important to this young man, right? That is the greatest privilege that we have as a coach. So that gray area for us when we do the shell drill is then we'll go on to a four-on-four cutthroat. Cutthroat, this Valley, you know, basketball school, uh, Dick Mata. Gosh, I hope I don't mess that up. I feel like he was the one, the original story, like he ran it, Coach Lipsy had it, and then it's went on to this lore of, Coach Showalter and Coach Slykehouse at Snow Valley, Iowa. Coach Showalter is running USA Basketball and you see Cutthroat, right. Michael Porter Jr. and all these guys, you know, and if you don't thank the passer, you blow the whistle and you, the basket doesn't count and that type of thing. Ultimately, it's the whistle that you hold that you see it, say it. If you see something that you don't like, you blow the whistle right there and they're rotated out and you tell them why. So again, I think a drill like Cutthroat is really good for this generation with the short attention span. Yeah. It's like dog training. <laughs> right. So it's that. They hear the whistle, the sound bite goes, they're out, they have to sit, right? And then they, they could come back in that, you know, to get it right 30 seconds later. Yeah. And you do that repeatedly and you do that every day. So a rule could be the general cutthroat rule is you always square up after the pass, right? And again, there's been many conversations now. Mm-hmm. Now it's the point five. So now you can't square up. You just got to go and make a decision. It's really just teaching them to see the floor as one. And then, you know, you have to cut after a pass. You have to move. So it's spacing, right? That's the big theme that everybody talks about these days. And then lastly, if you score off of a basket, it's thank the passer. Well, that's culture. That's you letting everybody know this is a five-on-five game, not a one-on-one game. So just like we do shell every day, we do cutthroat. And the rule could be now for us on defensive end, you could have a defensive cutthroat, offensive cutthroat. And on the defensive end, it could be, I could now blow the whistle when I see the overhelp, right? Yep. Blow the whistle, you're out, you overhelp, next. And then you do that for 10, 15, 20 minutes a day. Coach, your methodology and, okay, you blow the whistle, but then delivering the message to the player, how you approach him, because I think what can be so frustrating, especially for such young athletes is, yeah, okay, it's a baseline drive, it's this help, but now you're telling them it's too much help. And just the frustration that can build in your players. 
So when you're pulling them out, I guess, how are you delivering that message? Or what are you saying to help them understand that not everything's a hundred percent do this, do that, and don't get frustrated. I mean, those conversations generally happen after practice, right? But when you're a player, you understand, right? Yeah. Yeah. But for cutthroat, I don't have those conversations. Okay. So to figure it out, you know, how many times, like, that's something we say all the time to our players, figure it out. Some kid could be really slow footed. Another kid is like too fast. It's understanding how your own body works as a 16, 17, 18 year old. What worked for you as a sophomore might be different as a senior because you're physically stronger and faster and you've been around more. I don't have any conversations off to the side until it's all done. And you know, what's cool, Pat, is like, it might be hard for you to believe, but it's, you know, it could be for a kid, 20 reps of overhelping until it (laughs) finally clicks and they get it right. Again, as a coach, that's when you blow the whistle, stop the drill and just... Yeah, celebrate it. <laughs> you just won the championship. That's the moment as a coach you were pursuing and you celebrate it and then you move on. Coach, this has been great so far. I think good time for us to move on to a segment we call start, sub, or sit. And so for those that may be listening for the first time, we're going to give you three different basketball options and we'll ask you to start one, to bring one in off the bench as a sub, and then to plant one on the bench as your sit. And so You have not heard any of these, so these are all completely off the cuff for you. So, Coach, if you're ready, we'll dive right in. I don't think I'll be completely ready, but (laughs) let's do it. Let's figure it out. Let's go. Okay. So this first one has to do with your own coaching path and your coaching growth. We haven't gotten too into it in this podcast, but you have a tremendous path and you've coached at a number of different stops all over the world. And so I'm going to ask you probably an impossible question for you to answer, but it's going to be start, sub, sit, these three different past coaching stops that you've had. And which one has been the most impactful in your coaching career? Wow. I know. Tough question. But (laughs) we're going to go start, sub, or sit. The start will be the most impactful. Your stop in Harlem, your coaching stop in Mozambique, or your coaching stop at DeMatha Catholic in Maryland? This is not even fair. What in the world? Oh boy, that's awesome. That's really good. I have to start with Harlem. Okay. You know, I have a photo of my players from my first year. This is 2005. I'm at a charter school, K through eight charter school in central Harlem. My boss brings in a bag of balls and just drops it off. I was a middle school math teacher for six years there, part of the Teach for America program. It changed my life. I grew up relatively sheltered in Eugene Springfield. I graduated from the University of Oregon. Next thing I know, you know, I'm teaching in the South Bronx in a classroom with 35 students with 30 desks and chairs. I hadn't seen poverty firsthand before in my life. I'd never heard of a student coming to school without breakfast, you know, things of that nature. And so, you know, when I moved on to a charter school in Harlem where we had this phenomenal, you know, school with black excellence, really. I was so proud of what we achieved there. You know, we had a graduating class of 25 eighth graders and half of them went to prep schools and are doing amazing things all these years later. I have to start it because I don't get my coaching start unless I do that. I started as a middle school coach, got my reps there. It's really helpful that I did that because I'm building my own high school program. I can go to all my youth coaches who have career aspirations and say, I started where you were. And this is where you can really impact and teach the game and set the foundation. A lot of the young men that I look at in this photo on my desk, you know, they didn't go on to play high school basketball even after, but they did win a New York City charter school championship. It's to this day, the only championship I've won. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm still on that chase. That's okay. But my first year we go undefeated and we lose in the championship game. And a lot of these guys, you know, that, you know, to put themselves out there, to have the courage to come back the year after. You know, after being let down, it was something that I'll never forget. I owe these guys everything. And then sub, you know, I'd probably go with DeMatha. And again, DeMatha would start any day of the week for me. I spent three years there following my time in Africa. I was one of 11 assistant coaches on the high school staff, if you can imagine. Yeah. I started as an assistant freshman coach, worked my way up to head freshman coach, and then head JV coach before I left. And I went from being a JV coach at a high school program to sitting on a division one bench the year after at University of Portland. I don't think there's a lot of high school programs where a guy like that you know, can make that jump. But you know, the thing that I learned at the math though with that staff and their program is, again, you want to talk about simplicity. Like Coach Jones is one of the most brilliant basketball minds, but you know, the practice that we had was meat and potatoes. It's shell every day. It's focusing on the fundamentals. It's accountability. It's the things that I use every day in building my own high school program with lesser talent, (laughs) Uh but same mindset, 
we go out into it thinking that we only worry about ourselves and let others worry about us. I really learned that from my time at Damatha. I say sit for Mozambique for now. I lived there from 2006 to 2009. It was my first three years of marriage to my wife who was working in public health work, helping to in the fight against HIV AIDS in that continent. I say sit because every day my motivation professionally is to grow and have a platform where I can help the young people that I met back there. I lived in a house my first year in the backyard, a dirt field with nothing, you know, just a big field. And I was going stir crazy. And so I put a basketball hoop up on a tree. Like this is literally out of like some Disney movie or something. And uh-huh. kids just started showing up in my backyard. My wife would go off to work for her NGO. And at the end, we'd come home to like 30 kids, like in our backyard. <laughs> she said I was like the Pied Piper, you know, I, was, uh, <laughs> I had these kids without shoes on my dirt backyard playing basketball for the first time. You want to talk about tactics and you want to talk about multi-sport athletes. You know, it's a continent where soccer is king, right? These kids' sense of spacing and moving after the, cutting after the pass is far surpasses it they look like the san antonio spurs when they were coming in by sure you know when i was done with them (laughs) i I say i want to take credit for it but there are video clip proofs of it but it really is a credit to them as soccer being their sport first and when you're on the dirt field can you dribble maybe yeah yeah (laughs) so they had to depend on the pass and so to have a chance to share the love of the game like that with kids who have never played basketball before and then to think that you know a country with tremendous potential where kids just aren't given a chance yet. Just a plug for a good friend of mine, Clarice Mashanguana, who is one of the most accomplished players to come out of that continent. She has a foundation now. And so she's somebody that I'm going to work with in the future to go back and run clinics and build basketball courts and things of that nature. So it sits for now. If you guys come back and ask me that question a couple of years, that's a start. (laughs) Absolutely. Mozambique will start for me. Okay, coach, I know that's kind of an impossible question in, in sense, but it was fun to hear you work through it. And obviously all these stops have been very meaningful for you and have kind of built you into the coach you are today. I'm wondering about when you do, and you've mentioned a couple of times, when you get young coaches asking you for advice about, hey, where do I start? How do I get into the game? What should I do? What kind of job should I take? And having this extensive, unique background, I guess, what is the advice that you do give young coaches? I'm really looking forward to, you know, again, for anybody who's out there listening, you know, my email, my phone number, if you guys ever reach out to Dan and, and Pat, please feel free to share them because I was in their shoes 15, 16 years ago. I didn't come from a coaching tree or I didn't play collegiately. I didn't have the networking connections that I do have now 15, 16 years into the journey. But for me, the, the most impactful thing I heard was Kevin Eastman. I read it in the magazine or I heard it in an interview somewhere where he said, I've never turned down a basketball opportunity. And one of the most fulfilling things for me was when I finally got to meet him in the USA basketball context, I got to thank him in person, like Coach Eastman, that advice. I didn't know who you were and I just heard it, but it made all the difference in my career. So, you know, I get married in 2006. I had this amazing two years of being a middle school basketball coach and and have an inkling that this might be something that I should pursue. And the basketball with that borders camp was taking place in South Africa, in Johannesburg, just a six hours drive from Mozambique where I was living. And I hop on a bus. I go to downtown Joburg, had sent out a bunch of emails. And one of the guys in the league office said, hey, yeah, sure. Come on, go ahead. You know, we'll take you on as a volunteer. Hop on this bus. I, I'm crossing board, country borders, Pat, like, you know, having played in Europe and all that. You don't know what you're going yeah. into. And I walk in and that next morning they had put me in rebounding and shot blocking station with Dikembe Mutombo and Manute Bull. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and, and the other basketball representative is a legend in the game who sadly passed away last year in a bike accident, BJ Johnson, who was a longtime scout for the Houston Rockets. And this man took me in like our coach Corey and the football staff took me in, like gave me the biggest hug and welcomed me like as if I'm part of the NBA family, Yeah, you know? And so, but had I turned down that basketball opportunity, had I chickened out at that last minute and not get on that bus to cross into South Africa, I don't know where my journey goes. So that was a real teachable moment. So anytime I've had a chance to go to China and work camp for Yao Ming or go to Transnistria, which is the very eastern region of Moldova, because the State Department people called me and I'm next thing I know, I'm representing our country and running a basketball you know, clinic with Ruthie Bolton, who's a rock star celebrity walking around Moldova with their gold medal around the <laughs> neck. And, and so these are stories that, again, it, they're moments. Again, I only have one championship 
to speak of as a coach for 15 years, but I have memories that I'll have for the rest of my life. And I wish that for other young coaches who are coming up, that they have some crazy stories to tell and, and be on their way. All right, coach. Well, getting back to the court and our next start subsit, we've called this the endangered species list. So fundamentals that are close to extinction at the high school level, and maybe for a good reason, not necessarily always bad. So start, sub, or sit, the jump stop, the two-handed chest pass, or the triple threat? Hmm. I'd start triple threat all day, every day. I don't know who said that's being extinct. That's ridiculous. I want to fight that person. (laughs) (laughs) Triple threat is everything for us. In my mind, I think we're the 0.5 of the San Antonio Spurs or the Mozambican backyard, you know, (laughs) their field players. We're just not. I think being able to create an advantage where you have that half a second where you can attack long closeouts and things of that nature, that doesn't happen until, you know, an action that starts, you know, with the pick and roll or whatnot. I'd like to give my guys, you know, a couple seconds to survey the floor this year. And it depends on each group, but this group in particular, because they miss so much basketball over the last two years that we would normally give them, triple threat is something I've probably been talking about every day in practice, to be honest with you. So that starts jump stop that could sub you know mm-hmm. i think that's the next one that's important i think even like coach Wright of villanova has shown everybody how important the jump stop is you know when you get to the paint you know they do everything fundamentally two-footed jump stops there's always the conversation between that is do you land with the pro hop or do you land in a one two either one for me i think the biggest thing that i try to do when i first got here was i wanted to play the style that i got accustomed to at the matha with athletes but i didn't have the athletes mm-hmm. So I think one of the things that I've done uh, that I'm proud of is I, you know, I hired a strength coach, Ryan Shepard, who's been with me for seven years. And we teach our kids how to land. We teach our kids how to move and jump and drop step. And you'd be shocked. I think that's part of the reason if the conversation is being had that these are things that are close to extinction. I would challenge coaches out there to bring them out of it. Fight for it. Kids need to learn how to move. So you're talking about triple threat and jump stop. I think they go kind of hand in hand, to be honest with you, yeah. right? Um, but it's ultimately teaching our kids how to move, how to land, how to accelerate, how to decelerate. It's incredibly shocking how our young people, and especially because there's so many more specialization going on. I think when I model as a 45-year-old you know, former basketball player, I still move pretty well for an old man, but it's because I played tennis and I played soccer and I played basketball. I'm able to move even at my age in ways that my 15 year old athletes with their private trainers can't. Yeah. And so I think it's really just having that conversation for younger kids to not specialize, teach them how to move. And then the two-handed chest pass. Yeah, that can go. But, you know, that's, <laughs> that doesn't happen that often in, in basketball. It's the dodo bird. Yeah. yeah gone. <laughs> that, that one, you know, let's bury it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Coach, continue on that tangent of teaching your players how to move. What would be your recommendation for a coach? Like, what are the movements you think your young student athletes are lacking the most, whether it's landing or decelerating, accelerating? What are you seeing as their biggest deficit? Their hips don't move. <laughs> Our male athletes that I've seen here, their hip mobility is so poor. And so it's the boring work that our strength coach Ryan does with all our guys. They do fire hydrants. They do, you know, they do different warm up, dynamic warm ups, and spend a lot of time on it to open up their hips so that they can mm-hmm. get in the stance. We had this goofy thing at camp where I blow the whistle three times. And, you know, I have like third graders, fourth graders, you know, in our summer camps. And we have to scream, we love basketball, right? <laughs> Again, the triple threat thing, like I bring that in to our young people and sometimes I'll make them sit in the stands for a minute at a time just to see where their deficits are. Even as a young person, Uh I'm constantly watching for it. It starts with giving them that foundation to be the athlete that they want to be and to be more athletic than they look. We might not pass the airport test in terms of verticality in our program, but boy, we got some athletic hips at, you know, Lake (laughs) Oswego. Coach. What about nutrition? Are you talking about nutrition at all with your athletes and what they should or shouldn't be eating to help with recovery? Yes and no. I'm not good at it. So, you know, if anything that comes through this is like being authentic and, you know, I, again, during the course of the season, I don't do a good job of taking care of my body and putting things into my body. So I'll usually point that stuff to my assistant coaches who are much better at it and disciplined at me. I think even before that, it's sleep's been the thing that's been on the biggest month. Okay. At forefront, even before nutrition, I'm constantly asking our guys how much sleep they got the night before. 
We are also a very academically rigorous high school. And so the amount of stress that they're under and how late they're up studying, the big focus this year has been trying to be mindful of letting them out after two hours or two and a half hours, mm-hmm. not letting your practice drag on three hours. The kids are there 30 minutes before. All of a sudden, you know, you've taken up four hours of their day and now they're staying up until two. And so that becomes an endless cycle. And so I try to start there. And then for our younger players, my strength coach is really the guy who cracks the whip on that. That's what he does. That's what he lives. Okay. This next one is the theme is about shot selection and the conversations about shot selection with these three different types of players that you likely have on your roster. So the start would be the most difficult conversation to have. The sit would be the easiest one to have. So start, sub, or sit in the way of shot selection. The first one is the good player or one of your best players that has the green light. So the conversation about shot selection with your better players. The second option is an emerging, younger, talented player. So someone that's young, doesn't quite have the green light cachet that the first one does, but you want to develop. And the last one is the conversation with more of your role players. Someone you need on the floor is going to help you win, but it's not one of those guys that's going to shoot a lot. So start, subset, the most difficult conversation. The start, the most difficult is always with the role player at the high school level. They want to prove themselves. They want to work their way out of being a worker. They want to be seen as the finisher to your coach. You know, hey, coach, I can do this. I can make these shots. Well, prove it to me then. There's not a science to it. I wish I was more organized where, you know, I've used apps before where they track shots and, and things of that nature. There's, you know, places they go and shoot and they track all their shots. But really, I have to see it in practice. I have to see it in the context of a five-on-five within what we do. So those opportunities don't come that often for them because, you know, we might only scrimmage 20 minutes out of a two-hour practice, right? And they might only get a shot or two in that situation. So those are always the hardest ones. And then sub would be the emerging young talent. This year, I After seven years, I finally have a player that's a certified D1 basketball player who already has an offer as a freshman. So he thinks he should be shooting every shot, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and and I'm like, no, you, you know, you have to earn these shots. And so, but those are again, easier to have when you have senior leadership so that it's not just come from me, but there's some, you know, peer pressure and senior peer pressure as well. And then the easiest one is always the green light. You trust that guy, you know, and I, I think in the high school programs, you've seen that kid who is in the morning, you know, putting shots up on the shooting gun. And you see that translate in practice and games. And so that's always the easiest one. And the difficult conversation is always then with the parents, you know, who come <laughs> back and say, how come, uh, how come Josh has a green light and my son doesn't? Well, <laughs> get him practice. Yeah. Right. Coach, I loved all the answers. I want to go to, I guess, not one of these in specific to start, but really how you slowly and surely throughout the season make it known to the entire group where the shots should come from, from the types of players that we just talked about, because there's the blow the whistle when they take it, that shot in practice and in front of everybody say, that's not the shot or take them off to the side and have a personal conversation. How do you talk to your team about shot selection, both individually and as a group? And all of that, it looks different in the beginning of the season versus middle of the season, like where we're in right now, where we have enough data to point to things and then to the end of the season. And then it comes down to who we're playing, right? Our matchups and where we want to exploit those matchups and coming to a player and saying, hey, you've historically only taken four shots up to this point. This particular game, I need you taking eight shots. We had a guard this year who's, it was a dumb part on me as a coach to try to turn him into a point guard when he's a shooting guard. And so there was stretches last year where he would go through a game and only take three shots. And so for him, you know, we got to a point where he said every game you had to take six shots or seven shots. And I had an assistant coach who would track those things. I think that's a volume question, how many that you should shoot. And then the other piece is, it comes back to, you know, one of my coaching friends in our state said that we run our stuff and kids know their role. And they see that by the time we get to lead. So I don't mind a really tough off season. Originally, when we were going to interview, you know, I think we were two and eight and now we're four and nine. So we're a little bit better. So I think for us, it's this part of the season played all the best teams and we have enough of data set to say these are the shots you struggle with you know we don't have synergy but we have huddle assists where it breaks down after a game every shot they've taken so we can go back and look at those so that's a really powerful tool in terms of shot selection and then we can talk about what it's going to look like moving forward because league play is completely different as you guys know yeah you know when you get scouted when you get certain shots that even you know that your best player is accustomed to having and that's taken away well then what's our second best option what's our third best option 
coach, your three different topics, your sub, the emerging talent. And my question with the emerging talent is when it comes to shot selection, sort of in practice, when this player is maybe takes a questionable shot, how you, or even in a game, they say a couple of questionable shots in a game, how you interact with that player to get through to them. Hey, that's maybe the, not the type of shot we want, but we still want you to be aggressive when they maybe don't quite have the experience yet to really on their own know it. And you also want to keep them, obviously, their confidence up. So I'm interested in that conversation with the emerging talent. Pat, Dan was bragging about you yesterday about <laughs> what a great player you are. You know, and I'm sure you have your opinions on this as well. The Dan's and Marshall Chose of the world who were... Right, know, right. You know, <laughs> that was a freaking move that ball, Dan. Yeah. To get those shots, you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I try not to get in the way of my best players in those things. If they see themselves as Luka Doncic and Kevin Durant on the transition and they want to do that in practice, I try not to... It's funny because like you want to practice the way you play, right? So, But in terms of taking a gifted player and putting reins on them, I try not to do that. I try to give them as much freedom as possible and learn through their mistakes. And you know, to be honest with you, these kids are smart. They know what a good shot and a bad shot is at the end of the day. It's more stroking their ego or managing and saying, well, that's a difficult contested shot. Like That's the shot guys in the league make. You're not there yet. Sure. You know, and, and being able to just teach it in a way where, hey, that was a really tough shot. I can't believe you made that. Like, how many times do you think you're going to make that out of 10 attempts? Is that what you want to do? Is that how many points you want to have? You know, you want to leave off your stat sheet. So practice is that. But when you know when it comes to games, they take a bad shot that comes across as selfish. That was his shot versus our shot. He's sitting on the bench. I don't, <laughs> I don't care how good you are. It's my job, especially for that emerging player. Because if they have those aspirations, like this particular player I have, he's going to play on a team at some point with players who are just as good as him. And if I'm not instilling those habits now, they'll struggle. So for me, if they're telling me that their dream is to go play at Kentucky or, or a high major, you know, then I have to hold them accountable today, today, tomorrow, and the next four years. Coach, my quick follow-up is I want to go back to the volume discussion you mentioned of telling a player or having a goal in mind that you want a player to maybe get six or seven. How much will that influence maybe then your play calling? Do you keep that number in your head and think, you know, let's try to run whatever this play a couple of times to get him a shot? And then on the other side of the coin, is there a danger in telling your player how many shots you would like him to take or expect him to take? Absolutely dangerous, right? So. <laughs> You know, it it, it comes down to the kid who there are kids and you guys know this and you've had teammates who come back and they know exactly how many shots they've taken. Yeah. Right. So if you give them that number and they're at six and it's the last possession and they're like, I got to get to seven. (laughs) That's a dangerous place to be. I think what's better. I know maybe I should have refrained it more like you, you give them a range. Yeah. Right. You give them a six to eight. You know, I don't know if that's a big enough range. Maybe it's six to 10, you know, 10 is on the high end. That's, that means you're really going cooking that night you know, <laughs> yeah. versus six. It's something that we really tried recently. And it's something that we only really try with certain players. Fortunately, I haven't had a player yet where I go up to him and say, hey, we don't need you to hit 18 attempts every night. <laughs> you know? I haven't had that. That's been good. Knock on wood. Maybe I'll get a green light. And, you know, one of these days, be fortunate to have a kid. I want taking 20 shots a game, but sure. not quite there yet. Okay. And my last follow-up is just to kind of sum up this shot selection. Will you use play design and play calls early in the season to also kind of let the guys know who you want taking shots? Yeah, this is more of an evolution. This is my personal evolution as a coach, you know, over the last seven years when I would work with USA Basketball and I would come back and Coach Showalter ran a, we called it 20. It was a sideball continuity offense that, you know, you'd seen Gonzaga run with the side pick and roll, mm-hmm. where we play, ball gets swung to the other side. And so, you know, you run motion like that and you know where you're getting your shots, right? We had a conversation recently with our junior national team where even for Coach Charmin White, who was a head coach, and he found himself with the 24-second FIBA shot clock. They ended up running a lot of basically cutthroat, a couple of turns, an action or two, and you have to go because you got the shot clock. Yeah. In those circumstances, maybe the shots that you're getting are more random than if you're running a side pick and roll continuity. Myself also, I've evolved over the last seven years where the ball is in their hands a lot more. I'm essentially running cutthroat. So it's very random. Okay. And you want to get old quick, right? You see, you hear coaches saying that all the time. Well, you know, when I was sitting on the bench at University of Portland for two years, like a team that was impossible to scout was BYU. Mm -hmm. They just looked like they were playing like new and pick a ball with each other. Yeah. Yeah. That's my, you know, ambition. 
mm-hmm. by the end of the year. This is a little dangerous as well. I'm open to my players surprising me. Mm-hmm. So what I really learned two years ago was my most prolific player at the end of the season was not a guy that was that prolific at the beginning of the year. This young man, Casey Graver, you know, in his last high school game scored 28 points. He hadn't scored 28 points in his entire life. But on the highest stage, biggest pressure, this kid just, you know, within the context of our free flow, the game's always there to be taken, right? So I think leaving room for that individual who has heart, who is ready for that moment, and he sinks to the level of his training in that moment and says, I'm taking the shot. I see all the lanes that are open now. I can make the read. And it was a revelation for me. You might see that occasionally in the NBA finals where some role player that you didn't expect all of a sudden scores 20 and they, a Bobby Portis comes out of nowhere and right. the Bucks win. Yeah. Right? Those are really neat moments as a coach because yeah. you think you have a certain strip or a story that's being ready to be told. But the beauty of coaching high school basketball is you never know what you're going to get from an 18-year-old. <laughs> Fortunately for me, I, my job security isn't based on that. Right. And that's what's so hard for our peers at the Division One world. Their job security and their livelihood is dependent on the whims of an 18, 19, 20 year old. Right. Yeah. (laughs) But for me, the discovery of it and that moment when you see a player who's figured it out at that moment, you know, a win or a loss is what it is. But as a coach, that's the win for me. They put it all together and, and they have these moments that, again, they'll remember for the rest of their life. Coach, you're off the start, sub, sit hot seat. So <laughs> you were great. Thank you for that. We saved the triple threat from extinction, I think. Yeah. Well, coach, we got one more question for you as we wrap up. Before you do, this has been really fun for us. So thanks for your time and all yeah, your thoughts. Thank you, coach. Thanks so much, guys. Pat, I don't know if you know this. My brother is a Michelin award, you know, Michelin star earned a rock star chef and his big break, he was at Costco doing shopping for his restaurant and he got a call from the food and wine magazine. And they said, Hey, you're selected as one of our best new young chefs of the year. They only select like 15 a year. They give him like all these prizes, publicity, money, like all this, the fame. That's the big break. My brother got the call and he just didn't know, like he knew his life was about to change. And he told us all that he had to sit down for a moment, like at an aisle in Costco. I was telling Dan this, I got a call, you know, I was trying to get my young player, you know, recruited by Chapman. And so we've been in touch. He goes, hey, do you know Slapping Glass? I said, yeah, I love that podcast. And Dan was like, that's me. <laughs> and my friend, my best friend. And, you know, I'm in Costco, actually, ironically, shopping for my wife, you know, being the good high school coach, you know, trying to earn some money the wife preseason and I was like I didn't have to quite <laughs> yeah. sit down <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah this is my big break you know I'm, I'm on with Dan and Pat and <laughs> thank you, know. you coach that's <laughs> all that thank said you, coach, you guys right? are you guys are awesome doing a great job you know you're being great caretakers of the game and uh just appreciate you guys but coach thank you very much we appreciate that and we'll finish with this question here a question that we ask most of our guests to close. And we've gone through a little bit of your story today and you've had so many wonderful stops as a coach. Wondering what one of the best investments in your coaching career has been. I've listened to pretty much all of your interviews on this. And this is the part of the interview that I really try to pay close attention to. It's always fascinating a coach who's coached for 30 years, how they answer this question versus a, you know, a coach that you might have in the G League who's just getting started. That made me really reflect on today, 15 years into it, the investment that I make today. Because the best investment I made year one and two and three was what, you know, following Coach Eastman's advice was, right? It was just taking any basketball opportunity I could. Well, now at year 15, with the friendships that I built over the years, the network that I have, I don't have to work like that anymore, right? And I have other priorities as a parent so that if I'm using that same strategy at this point in my career, it'd be foolish. At this point, the best investment that I've done is hiring amazing assistant coaches. You know, I have a staff that just fits me to a T that makes up for everything that I come up short in. I have, you know, a fellow coach who's a father who's my age, my peer. So he's somebody that I can relate to and that he and I can, you know, talk about. I have another coach, you know, who's a teacher, somebody that I, again, I taught for 12 years. So I know the challenge that he's going through. He knows what I'm going through. I have younger coaches who aspire to be here for three years, take advantage of every resource that we have here, and then to move on. I have a coach, Corey Coom, who's in your you know conference at Redlands. You know, I have a coach who Jason Luno, who just went on to the video room with the Trailblazers. I have, you know, Don Campbell, who is a head coach in town. So 
it's those younger coaches who bring the energy and do all the hard work as I did for Coach Jones at the Matha, getting to see them, investing in them and, and getting the return of it, you know, that they run our offense, they run our off-season workouts. So that's been the most rewarding to see them succeed. But also for me personally, it's less work. <laughs> I'm sharing the workload, you know, again, so that I can be present. I can have, you know, I can fight for my mental health and pay attention to, again, the job of a high school coach, you know, today is being a counselor, it's being a mentor, it's being a teacher, it's being the big brother, it's being the big uncle, it's being, you know, everything that all of my peers that we have to fight for for today and how hard the job is, I wouldn't be able to do this at a high level without my coaching staff. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. That's good. Let's roll. <laughs> slapping glass.